Welcome to the Truth Matters podcast, a guide to misinformation. I'm Della Kilroy, a journalist with RTE, and I'm your host. And I'm Shane Creevy, the head of editorial at Kinzen, and I'm also your host. We're joining forces to do a four-part podcast series exploring how misinformation spreads in an era of mass communication and how to protect yourself against it. So we're going to be examining the differences between misinformation and disinformation and investigating how and why conspiracy theories spread so rapidly online. The hope is really to start a conversation and to help you learn the skills to identify misinformation and play your part in combating the spread online. Shane, tell us more about what we can expect in the next four episodes. Sure, Della. Um, this episode uh, begins with, uh, as you said, the, the fundamental bedrock here, like what is this stuff? What is misinformation? And one of the core things we can do to combat it, which is media literacy. The next episode, we'll talk about how we talk to people who have gone down the conspiracy rabbit hole. The third episode, we talk about what some platforms are doing in terms of content moderation, the work of journalism in relation to all this and fact checking. And in the fourth episode, finally, we talk about the solutions that we can also look at besides these areas, things like what are civic society organizations able to do here? What's the role of government and regulation, if any? What can technology do here? So there's a lot of really interesting things to discuss in the next few episodes. So we're going to try and figure out how to talk to friends who believe in conspiracy theories. And we've been interviewing journalists, authors, civil rights activists and digital experts on the challenges and solutions surrounding misinformation. But as you said, Shane, first up in this episode, we're going to be looking at the motivations in spreading false information online and the psychology behind why we sometimes unwittingly share it. Yeah. So like from the moment we wake up, most of us. I know I do, uh, look at our phones uh, mm. and throughout the day, we're just bombarded with information constantly from a variety of different sources. And sometimes it can be hard to know what to believe or what you should share, especially when you see something coming from a friend or a loved one that you trust. Exactly. And I suppose for many people this year, the capital riots in the US were thought to be by some a physical manifestation of this online misinformation problem. But misinformation has been around for a long time. Over 10 years ago, Shane, we both worked together in Storyful, founded by Mark Little, where we were debunking and verifying online content all the time. You're continuing this work, investigating disinformation with Kinzen, also started by Mark Little and Anya Care. So I suppose when we talk about this topic there are lots of different terms from fake news to dis and misinformation can you tell us what is the difference between misinformation and disinformation first off what should people look out for yeah absolutely so uh, with disinformation we're talking about the deliberate spreading of false information the intention is to deceive you for some personal gain or some group gain you know that could be financial motives could be political motives yeah, and there could be a, a number of other reasons why, why people would do this. Misinformation is, is, a, is a related problem where maybe people are unwittingly spreading that false information. And so a perfect example of that, if you remember at the start of, of the pandemic, uh, we had all these WhatsApp messages flying around where people were copying and pasting these messages about you know, the army coming onto the streets to lock things down. It was all false, but as you know, whoever it may be was spreading that, they're, they're engaged in an act of, of misinformation. Um, look, misinformation has been around since forever. The difference now is the power of social platforms, algorithms, personal recommendation systems, you know, things like the dark web, troll armies, money. 
it's all much faster than ever before. And this is partly what I'm doing every day at Kinzen. Um, we're identifying these coordinated campaigns of deception, whether that be about vaccines and COVID or politics or potentially any aspects of our lives today. And we're building technology to help scale that detection. Now, what can we all do as individuals about this problem? Media literacy has to be a big part of the answer. Well, we've been talking to experts working in the misinformation and media literacy field about some of those challenges and solutions when it comes to misinformation. We're first going to hear from Mike Caulfield. He's a digital literacy expert at Washington State University, Vancouver, and he's been contemplating these issues for quite some time now. When we spoke to him first, we asked him about why misinformation spreads so easily online. <laughs> well, you could do a whole, uh, you could do a whole, um, you could do a whole course on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's, there's multiple factors, right? Uh, so one of the things that I think people have come to understand is, is one reason is us, right? That we spread it. Uh, you know, people um, look at something, they give it their attention, they get outraged or surprised or whatever, and they, they sort of forward it on to other people. Certainly, everybody having become a publisher without necessarily like a micro publisher, without necessarily training on uh, you know how to be a publisher, that that's certainly a piece of it. Uh, but I, I, there are other things as well. The the platforms interfaces of these platforms are designed to really facilitate sharing, spread, comments, that sort of thing. Right. That's that's the bread and butter of that industry. Is is uh, interaction and what they call engagement. So there's uh, there's us, our sort of natural tendency, there's the platform and how the platform is designed. And then I, I think the third factor that people don't look at enough is the, there are influential people who spread this stuff, right? Uh, and so it's tempting to see it as a collective problem in the sense that everybody participates in it. And in some ways that is true, uh, but some people have more influence than others. And so one of the things that we see when we track the spread of misinformation uh, are there are these thought leaders, people that have various sort of spheres of, of, of influence. When something hits them and they tweet it out, repost it, uh, then it sort of explodes, right? So it's both a bottom-up process facilitated by the platforms, but it it is it, it kind of goes bottom up to go top down, right? Something will reach a certain amount of uh, viral spread uh, just sort of organically, but then it gets picked up by people that really put it out in something that might be seen as a more traditional broadcast uh, sort of mechanism. And then it, it gets disseminated. And in, ter in terms of the psychology behind it, so why do people then have the urge, I guess, to respread this information that's that often goes un unverified? Asking why people share things online is like asking why people talk, right? But one of the things uh, is that people often see what they share online as a as a sort of a, a way of expression. What they are trying to do is they're trying to demonstrate their commitment to an issue for example. And when they see something that uh, really plugs into that, um, a lot of times they don't stop, you know, they don't stop and think, uh, well, you know, is this, is this accurate? Um, my particular perspective on this is one of the reasons why people rush past that step is people uh, generally want to be seen as somebody that's credible, someone that shares things. And people would also like to be seen as a person that supports this cause, that's very passionate about pharmaceutical safety, something like that. When you kind of think of the moral calculus that someone has to do, 
they're like, well, you know, I could check this, but that would that would take forever. And this really expresses what I want. So they they kind of I think they kind of go with that. They they make that they make that calculus. It's 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 a sort of the easier win, is the expression over the accuracy. So Mike, on that, you've developed a method which you call SIFT to try to help people navigate this, which is you know it's tricky, right? I, I I've been doing this as a journalist for twelve years, and even I sometimes mess up, make a mistake, right? So. For people who aren't necessarily embedded in the world of information studies every single day, you've developed this method, SIFT. Can you explain what is that? Yeah, so SIFT is a methodology. Uh, we developed it to teach college students. Uh, here in the States, uh, we often have information literacy courses that are taught uh, often by library staff. And so SIFT is a method that focuses on getting quick assessments, very rough assessments of whether something is uh, likely true, likely false, somewhere in between, whether it is worth your attention, you know, or whether it is something that is probably not worth your attention. The steps of SIFT are pretty simple. First is stop. You see something, you ask, uh, do I actually know this person sharing it? Do I actually know anything about this claim? Uh, the second is investigate the source. And we're not talking about Pulitzer Prize winning investigations here. Uh, we're talking about like, can I hover over this person and find out are they a policy analyst or are they a comedian on weird Twitter, right? That sort of level of thing. Find uh, better coverage, which is really, if, if you find that the source that has pushed this particular issue, subject, story to you is not really the best source to be getting it from, cut, cut bait, go on and find a, a, a better source on that. It's one of the things that we find that people often don't think about. People think, you know, I've never heard of this publication before, but I'm going to dive in and read this, uh, this treatment of this issue I care about instead of saying, oh, well, I care about the issue. Let me just, let me go and find a better publication on this though, rather than being pulled in. And then the final one is a little bit, um, can be a little more, bit more complicated is uh, trace claims, quotes, and media to the original context. But a lot of times we see uh, a quote or a video or something like that, uh, that has been, uh, or a statistic uh, that's been decontextualized, or we see someone tweet a story with a particular summary of it that may be accurate or not, you know, uh, about what that story actually is. And so it's, it's a, about going back to the original reporting source. Uh, if it's a photo, trying to find where that photo came from, uh, these uh, these four things together: stop, uh, investigate the source, find better coverage, and trace claims, quotes, and media um, are sift, and is supposed to take between thirty and you know maybe ninety seconds of your time to just kind of get the lay of the land on a particular issue, claim, or or um, source. Over the last year, since the start of the pandemic, we've seen people share so much information online, often before fact-checking. How, how do you think this SIFT method can be brought to a wider audience, people who might benefit most from these measures? Where and how should should this be taught? At the end of a college, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do a two-week uh, module on, on SIFT. And at the end of that, the students will say, this is, this is really great. I'm really excited about it. Now can you, you, know, now can you teach my parents? <laughs> you know, can, you, can you come over and, and show them how they do that? We all have great uh, options for that. There's not necessarily institutional structures for adult education that there are for uh, younger people, but there are a number of ways that we can, we can look at. The first is that when you teach, uh, when you teach uh, children, when you teach college students, they do end up transferring some of these skills to their family, to the people they know. We know this. And one of the things that we find is that people have gotten too cynical about this. People, 
people think a lot about this issue of sort of motivated reasoning that that people are just sharing things because because they don't care if they're right but ac actually we we find that a lot of people really do <laughs> do care if they're right and as a matter of fact a lot of people are trying to navigate some of this information because they they end up having to make a decision like on whether to be vaccinated or something like that and they want to get that decision right right and so i think i think we kind of have to look a, across a range of options uh, for people that are older. Uh, at the same time, I, I do think we have to engage younger people with this as, as soon as possible. What I love about SIFT is that it's this quick method, right? As you say, it, it should be done in 30 seconds, 60, maybe 90 seconds max. And so as I'm navigating through social media, I'm often, thanks to you, I have SIFT in the back of my head, right? And, and the, the first part of that, stop. Just pause, take a breath. You don't have to retweet straight away. It's such a valuable lesson for, for me, I have to say, as I you know, move through various social platforms. But you've uh, written some really interesting things and said some really interesting things about the danger of overthinking all this. Um, so I'd love yeah. to hear about that because we often talk about the importance of critical thinking when we talk about media literacy. But, but you have a fairly nuanced take on that. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, yeah. The critical thinking, the way, the way that we've tended to be taught it is that if you want to really understand whether something is true or false, you dive deeply into that thing. You get an article, it says, oh, well, coronavirus, the current strain of coronavirus was developed as a bioweapon. And here's like this, uh, you know, 40-minute YouTube video on that, or here's this, you know, eight page article. The way that we're often taught to critically think is, oh, well, to figure out if that's right or wrong, dive into that article, start reasoning, start looking at the arguments, you know, watch that YouTube video, you know, take all this stuff down, see what points are being made. And the truth is that if that person is, is not careful with the truth, if, if they're selecting things in a way uh, that is a very slanted, you know, critical thinking isn't going to help you there because they're, it's, it's really their playing field at that point. You've given them your attention. One of the things that we really want to do with critical thinking is, is say, stop people from jumping straight into, oh, I'm going to engage with this thing and ask first, of all the things on this issue, is this the thing I want to engage with? The, the sort of radical idea we have is, is that people do better when they're taught to do <laughs> these things. It's helping people navigate the environment as it is. It's making sure that these platforms make it easier for people to make plausibility judgments, to, to make reliability judgments. And it is, um, for, for some set of things, uh, there's, there's a place for governmental action as well. That was Mike Caulfield, digital literacy expert and director of blended and networked learning at Washington State University, Vancouver. Interesting points from Mike on what we can do before we share online content. Yeah, I, I really like the, the, the SIFT method. It's easy to kind of keep it in your head. Stop, investigate the source, find better trusted coverage. And if you have the time, you can go and trace the original. And of course, this topic is something that the organisation Media Literacy Ireland have been looking at closer to home. Martina Chapman is a media literacy expert and she heads up Ireland's Be Media Smart campaign. Now, Martina is going to tell us more about the campaign. But first, you might have heard this ad on the radio, on your television or online. Things aren't always what they seem. We may not always know where our information is coming from or who it's coming from. 
That's why it's more important than ever to verify what you see, read or hear and to be media smart. Visit www.bemediasmart.ie Stop. Think. Check. Be media smart. So that's a clip from the Be Media Smart campaign developed by Media Literacy Ireland. So Della, when we sat down and, and spoke with Martina, we talked about what it actually means to be media smart. And this term media literacy, which we've used a lot now in the last few minutes in the, in the podcast, like what does that actually mean and, and how has it changed in recent decades? Media literacy is basically, it's a really unhelpful term, I think, because nobody actually understands what it is. But it's, it's basically an academic term and it goes back like a couple of decades now and it originated really when, we, when media, as we know it, was much more limited. You know, you basically had TV, radio or film. So media literacy at that stage was about, you know, reading the media, understanding how content was put together. But it also meant um, understanding as well, and this relates to newspapers too, you know, who owns different types of media and how, what the editorial processes are. So basically how media is made. So if you understand how media is made and how it's funded, then you've got a much better chance of, you know, making an informed choice. These days it's a bit different because, you know, really since the dawn of the smartphone, suddenly we can all become broadcasters. We can all become content creators. And we, you know, there's been huge benefits to that because it has democratized the media. It means that we can all have our say. But the flip side of it is, you know, in traditional media, there are editorial guidelines, there's uh, regulations. With the smartphone, with the internet, and to be able to broadcast or comment or whatever, then they're not held to the same kind of account or the same level as some of the traditional media. So these days, media literacy is a much broader concept. It involves things like actually knowing how to get online, how to navigate, how to understand the content that you're, you're finding. It also means knowing how to potentially create video create audio like podcasts like we're doing here but it's still also a big part of it is about that critical understanding it's knowing how media is made and being able to make an informed choice based on your knowledge and because it's such a dynamic concept the minute for example the minute technology changes then we find that there's new opportunities but also new potential risks so you need to develop new skills to try and manage those and I mean, just look, in the 18 months ago, nobody would have thought that being able to use Zoom and platforms like Zoom was going to be pretty much an essential skill. And then COVID hit. And without that skill, people were going to be incredibly isolated. You know, we, we can't see the changes or the prompts that come along. And that's why it's so hard to, to really define media literacy. So you've been working a lot on the Be Media Smart campaign to try to spread the message of media literacy to a wider audience. Can you just tell us a little bit about that campaign, what you're trying to teach the Irish people, you know, how you're trying to set up that campaign? So Be Media Smart is an initiative of Media Literacy Ireland, an informal alliance of people and organisations who want to promote media literacy. And it encourages people to stop, think and check that the information that they're reading or seeing or hearing is accurate and reliable. And in terms of language, when we were developing this, uh, this campaign, we were quite careful in terms of the language because we didn't talk about fake news and we didn't talk about misinformation. Because the way we're looking at this is that this misinformation affects every part of life or has the potential to affect every part of life. 
So we want to try and help people think of, you know, being able to verify information in those terms. We came up with the concept, which was, wouldn't it be great if people cared as much about where their information comes from as they do about where, for example, their food comes from? But when it comes to, even if we could guarantee that every child or every young person leaving school was fully media literate, because it's a changing dynamic, within five years, that knowledge would be out of date and obsolete. So what we're doing is we're looking at this as lifelong learning. We're trying to normalize the concept that you need to update your media literacy skills. So what we're really trying to do is raise awareness that misinformation is an issue, but more importantly say it's an issue, but there are things you as an individual can do to help yourself and, and to help inform yourself and build up your skills in this area. So one of the things we're doing is we've got the Be Media Smart website and we're encouraging everybody to signpost that. It's a neutral space. It's got tips and information on how to spot misinformation it's, it's, uh, and how to look for accurate and reliable content and information. It's got um, helpful tips on how to talk to friends and family, for example, if they're the ones are spreading misinformation, which is a really tricky thing to kind of do. It's very difficult to address. What have you found has been the interest or the uptake? Are people encouraged or enthusiastic about learning about media literacy? I think people are really interested in the topic when they don't, when we don't use the term media literacy, because it's a really, I find it's a really distracting topic. And actually it means different things to different people as well. But if you have a conversation with anybody, especially since kind of March 2020, when, you know, we were all getting the, the armies on the street WhatsApp messages, suddenly, you know, misinformation and the impact, the potential impact it could have on people's lives, it became very real. And people are really interested in that topic now. Everyone's talking about it. But what we haven't cracked yet, I think, as a society is, OK, we're, we recognize now this is a problem. But what we haven't kind of cracked yet is finding a way to automatically direct people to sources of support when we're talking about misinformation. Sometimes I think it's a little bit like climate change. It's so huge. It impacts everybody, but it impacts everybody in different ways. And when a problem is so big like this, it can make people feel really powerless. And as a result, there's a real danger if we're talking about it and it's all in very dramatic terms, and we're not empowering people to do something to help themselves, there's a real risk that people just switch off and go, that's too big of a problem for me. What's the biggest obstacle or blocker that you see to us all becoming more empowered, healthy consumers of information? Media literacy as a whole, you know, touches on a number of different policy areas. And as a result, everybody thinks it's great, it's really important, and we should all be doing it. But nobody has kind of responsibility for it. And that makes it really difficult to secure funding, particularly long-term funding. Because if we think about media literacy as lifelong learning, something that we all need to do on a regular basis, we're not going to see change overnight. You know, sometimes it feels like we, we could be trying to hit a moving target. Martina Chapman there on Media Literacy Ireland's Be Media Smart campaign. You can find links to resources and more information on the site bemediasmart.ie. Lots of great tips in there on finding accurate sources, identifying misinformation and just being media smart, I guess. And Shane, we've, we've thrown around this term media literacy 
it's thrown around quite a bit to really dig in a bit more we spoke to Dan Gilmore who's been working on this now actually for decades and he helps run an online course called Media Active about how to nurture what he calls a healthy information diet. Yeah, I've been following Dan's work for, for a long time. He's a big hero of mine. He's written a great book, which is also called Media Active. And when we spoke with him, he first told us about his principles when navigating online information and about the importance of keeping yourself up to date from a variety of sources. You know, don't just read from the same place all the time, give you the broadest possible perspective. It's well worth listening to what Dan has to say. The first principle, the first one is to be skeptical to be relentlessly skeptical of absolutely everything. However, don't be equally skeptical of absolutely everything. Use judgment. If you learn how to find things you can trust more than not, doesn't mean you believe them 100%, but it means you have more trust than not. That's a great way forward toward being useful to yourself. Ask of yourself, uh, does this make sense? Ask yourself, where is this coming from? Two other principles that uh, I feel very important about. One is to go outside your comfort zone. Ask yourself if you're getting a full picture of the world. And um, I make a practice of reading things that I know will make my blood boil because I'll be so opposed to the viewpoint. However, if I don't do that, I'm very certainly going to be wrong about something because people I vehemently disagree with can teach me something. And finally, we have to learn how to be aware of how media are used to persuade and in fact manipulate. But at some basic level, understanding how media work is a great way to start becoming media literate in the way that we like to see. The big thing about media literacy is, is getting to the, how do you know that? That's one of the best questions and it's one of the ways to deal with, you know, we call it the Uncle Ed problem. If, if Uncle Ed is the guy spouting misinformation on Facebook, what do you do when someone you care about a lot is doing something that bothers you a lot and, and is contributing to a, a toxic information environment? It's hard to reach people who are determined to be misinformed. That was something we saw throughout the pandemic, especially in closed group network groups like WhatsApp, where people would would say, mm. well, my source is my my uncle's friend works in the army or my uncle's friend is a teacher. And, you know, they're full lockdown tomorrow or we saw a lot of that. It, it can be hard for people then. Yeah, exactly. Like to, to challenge someone um, when they are in a in a group together or to ask where they heard something from when they're saying, well, it's a, a friend's friend and, and they think that that's still a reliable source. It's fascinating because there are some things where I trust my friends to be correct, but it's in areas that I know they know a lot. People shouldn't make that assumption about anything I say unless they know that I have some expertise. One thing about skepticism we've, we've learned in recent years is that I, I used to think getting people to be skeptical would be difficult, but turns out that younger people are skeptical of everything except their friends who they should be more skeptical of. But I think it's a good start that people are skeptical. So I've been following your career for a long time. You wrote the uh, great book on media literacy, Media Active, uh, over 10 years ago. When I was starting as a journalist, I, I read that book and uh, social media was exploding at the time. And it was just such a helpful 
set of guidelines and principles. You know, the book is very optimistic. I would say the problem seems to have been get, got, you know, getting worse since then. <laughs> or maybe we just know a lot more about it, which is perhaps a good thing. You seem to have retained your optimism throughout all these years. Can you help me understand a little bit about that? And, and are you still optimistic for the future? It, I may be wrong, but I don't think that it's ever good to give up. And we are making progress. The, the genuine crisis that we have faced on misinformation is rooted in so many problems beyond what news organizations do, conspiracy theories and lies about things like vaccinations, the seedlings that have been planted to make those things grow into serious trees were planted a long time ago in corrupt acts by governments and companies and people who uh, violated trust. Th that and, and the inequality in our world today, things that make people cynical, th that didn't start with media. That's They use media. If we don't get a handle in our world on corruption and and growing lack of opportunity for billions of people. I fear that that would that would cause my optimism to really fade. And I, I still remain optimistic that we are going that we recognize these problems and we're going to do something. People are getting so that they understand misinformation a lot better. There's been more research into this in the last two years, two to four years, than uh, at any time in the past. And I really do think that we are working toward understanding. And if you don't understand something, there's no way you're going to fix it. We need to treat our understanding of how the digital world works as part of something we learn early and often and keep learning. In Ireland, we have a Be Media Smart campaign for the general public. The BBC have a game, a program for primary school children, teaching them how to identify fake news, misinformation. When should people start learning and where is the best place, especially considering that certain ideals might be ingrained at an early age, even at home? Mm -hmm. Keeping in mind that in some households, critical thinking, which is at the heart of all of this, it, it will never be permitted. The, the approach we should take to this is different at various ages. Uh, hard for me to say to a parent of a five-year-old, you should teach that kid to doubt everything you say. But we need to help kids understand quite early the difference between an ad and something that's not an ad. They need There's all kinds of things going on. Uh, our, our best course takers were people who uh, were in their... 60s and 70s and older. While we certainly need to upgrade the supply of media, we desperately need to do that. We have to upgrade us on the demand side and we have to do it at scale. And scale means education at the younger ages, but it also means trying to get the media involved and of course, trying to get the technology companies which define scale to be involved. And we're seeing some movement in all of those areas. That was Dan Gilmore from News Co Lab with some advice on how to evaluate and scrutinize sources. And you can find more information on his Media Active course on mediaactive.com. Shane, an interesting perspective on reading a, a wide range of sources. And Dan mentioned there the so-called Uncle Ed situation when someone maybe you care about that's close to you is spreading or sharing misinformation. Yeah, and that's exactly the topic of the next episode in our series where we're going to start to look at how do we talk to friends or family 
who believe in these conspiracy theories. It's an ever-growing problem uh, in today's world, sadly. A lot of families are being torn apart by these conspiracies. How are we supposed to deal with this? It's a really tricky question. So our next episode is going to really explore in depth how we do so, the role of empathy and all this, and what we can do about it. So for a taste of what's coming next time, here's one voice you'll be hearing from. I was wholly consumed by this conspiracy, like, like most, like 95%, I would say, of my friendships. And I had a lot of friends. That's not a brag, like I don't have them anymore. But like, it was just through my demeanor, my behavior, my inability to talk about anything but Q. I was agitated. I was anxious. I was aggressive. You know, it just, I wasn't fun to be around. That was Jatarth Jadija, a former QAnon conspiracy believer, and one of the voices we'll be hearing from in the next episode. In that episode, we'll also be hearing from Mick West, who's the author of a book called Escaping the Rabbit Hole, Eva Gallagher, analysis at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, Carl Coriat, a former conspiracy theory believer and 9-11 truther, and Amanda Stanfill, who has set up a support group for families of loved ones who believe in conspiracy theories. That's coming up in the next episode of the Truth Matters podcast, a guide to misinformation. Thanks for listening. And if you found this interesting, please do share.